I think in some ways it has connection with this morning's message when Paul said to the Thessalonians that they need to walk in such a way that they are pleasing to God and you are pleasing to God, you're doing that. But you need to learn to do it more and more. I think in some ways you can see that happening in Abraham's life and we'll use him as our illustration at the end. But a while ago when I went to a seminar for foster parents, a company that was doing the seminar specialized in brain studies. And their particular study was on the study of the teenage brain. And they wanted to help us understand how it actually works so that we could help get kids through the teen years. Some of you who have teens would wonder if they are even able to, to understand that at all. But he claimed that his studies, that when he began to talk about God, and they had a person's brain hooked up to their apparatus that all the lobes of the human brain began to light up to some extent. In other words, usually when they talked about music, a certain lobe uh, ended up lighting up, and science was another, and fear went to another. But the thought about God activated the entire brain. And now University of Missouri researchers have completed a research that indicates spirituality is a complex phenomenon. And multiple areas of the brain are responsible for many aspects of a spiritual experience. So even, even secular studies are now showing this to be true too. So when you hear the word God, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And if you think about the first thing that comes to your mind, it's probably short of God. So you'd say, all right, think higher. And as you begin to try to think higher about God and who he is and all that's about him, our our minds still fall somewhat short. God's creation testifies to his existence. And it's been doing so ever since the beginning of time. In fact, Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world, and the whole world through nature, through creation. Here's the cry that there's a God that he exists, and that he created. Paul would go on to add to this in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. He's talking about the whole world. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's part of the hardwire package God put into us. In, in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse, under where mankind, in reality, just, just by what nature proclaims about God, would cause us to have responsibility to understand there is, there is a God. He does exist. He's eternal and his power is incredible. It's interesting that there were two different guys that were often quoted on this idea about God and thinking about God. 
A.W. Tozer lived from 1897 to 1963, and he made this comment. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say this. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains a high or low thought of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact or the most foreboding or self-important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. For we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And then on the flip side, you have C.S. Lewis, also born in 1898, one year later, but died in 1963, their contemporaries pretty sure that he's probably reading, and when he quotes an article they read, one of Tozer's, but not sure because he didn't actually put it in print that we know of till his book um, in 1963, Knowledge of the Holy. C.S. Lewis says this, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. So he starts to contradict. God thinks of us not only... Excuse me, how God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. So he's going to say, it's not, it's not just what we think about God. <laughs> it's what we think God thinks about us, too, is most critical to him. But it's infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, But delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. And so he's saying, well, it's not our thought about God that is most critical, but our thought about what God thinks about us becomes most critical. And I'm going to kind of say, they both go together. They, They both need to be there. Because I could think that God is holy, and I think all of us in the room would say God's holy, that he's unique, and he's without any blemish. And I think we would all agree from verses like 1 Peter 1.15, be holy like I, the Lord your God, am holy, that he intends for us to be holy also. But what if I, in my actual life, am more interested as I come to God in prayer about things that I want God to do so that it will make my life a little bit easier. 
and, and maybe change some circumstances so that I could be a little bit happier. In, in other words, is my thought of God and who he is and what he's expecting of me lined up with what I'm beginning to pray about? Or have you ever said something like this? I don't know why God allowed this to happen in my life. I think he must hate me this week. That's just how I feel. And we probably won't always say it out loud, but sometimes that goes through our mind, and the question is, is that lined up with what our view of God should be, and is it lined up with how God actually looks at us in Scripture? And that's what I'm saying. I think both of these things aren't conflicting with each other, but actually both are necessary, both essential to the Christian life so that we can come to live a life to please God. I want to look at Abraham for just just the last part of this. You know, Abraham, as you look at his life, he's got high points and he's got low points. And in the end, God calls him his friend. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham's commanded to leave his homeland and his family and go to a land that God will show him and God promises that it will be his land. But we also know that his father goes with him. And while Abraham is, is showing extraordinary faith to pick up everything he has and leave and go someplace that God has not told him where it is, he's just got to trust God's going to lead him there. I, I don't know if I could do that. And yet at the same time, we know that there's incomplete obedience on his part too. In chapter 13, Abraham gives a lot to choose of the land that's before him. And Lot chooses the choicest land. And Abraham's okay with it. In fact, he's got extraordinary faith that God is able to take care of his flock, regardless of the land that he has. And at the same time, we also find that he builds an altar to God in the Oaks of Mamre. And worship becomes center to Abraham in his life. And in chapter 14... Lot, you remember, is taken away by the kings that come and they conquer the kings that are fighting with Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham goes with 318 servants and some men that are living in the area and they go and take on these other kings that were victorious. And he's showing extraordinary faith because he understands that God is powerful enough to give him victory in that. We would say that's a high point. And in Genesis 15, for the first time, we have Abraham recognizing God as master God and trusting God. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And some people think that Abraham might be afraid that the kings he just defeated are going to mount up an army again and come attack him. But the context lets us know his his real fear is God promised him a son and time has passed. A decent amount of time has passed. And God hasn't answered it. And why hasn't God answered it? And Abraham said, O Lord God, Adonai, Master God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, one of his servants. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir, just just like God had promised. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And the word there is, and he believed the Lord. And again, it's, it's not just belief with his intellect. And it's not just belief that he's assenting that it's true. It's that he's actually trusting that. And that's the difference between just a faith and a faith that ends up saving is that trust and that belief that goes beyond just the intellect. And it goes beyond just assenting that things are true about God as we read the Bible or true about how God thinks about us as we read the Bible. We, we actually believe them enough that they get put into action. And that's something that we grow in more and more and more and more. It's not something that just happens to the extent that's happening with Abraham. It was a period of time and through many different trials and many different circumstances. And then we get to chapter 16. Ten years passed by since chapter 15. And no son was Sarah. And Sarah convinces Abraham according to the customs of their day. Take my handmaid. And through my handmaid I want you to have a son. And Abraham obliges. And they have Ishmael. And we would look at this and say, but he promised that it was going to come through Sarah. Not, not through Hagar. And we might look at it and say that Adam and Sarah are actually helping God out, helping God accomplish the promise through their own mind and through their own understanding. And I think we do that sometimes. I know I do that sometimes too. But then in chapter 17, this is now 13 years after Ishmael's been born. So 23 more years go by, plus still no son. Promise still not fulfilled. And it says this in Genesis 17, 1. It's, it's one of my favorite verses. When Abraham was 99 years old, beyond normal child, childbearing time, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. I am the El Shaddai. Walk before me and be thou blameless. And it's interesting when you think about the Al Shaddai, because this is God wanting Abraham to think a specific thing about him and who he is. And it's supposed to make a difference then how Abraham thinks and acts. Al Shaddai gives the idea of the Almighty God or the God that stands on the mountain. It's also argued by others that Shaddai comes from the root Shad, which is breast. And that God is saying to Abraham in this particular setting, because he does it in some other places in the Old Testament, I am the strong-breasted one. I'm the all-sufficient nourisher. I am completely capable of giving you the son that I'm promising. Either way, the point is, in that particular verse, he's communicating to Abraham who he is and what he can surely do. And then he says this as a result, so walk before me. What word walk gives the idea of transverse. 
or as you are transversing this world, Abraham, as you are walking in this life, as you're living life out, wherever it may be and however it may be in whatever circumstance you find yourself in, he says, walk before me or, or walk in my face so that everywhere Abraham turns to walk in this world, he walks as though he faces God. So here's a question. If we walked as though we faced God everywhere we turn, all the thought that we have, all the action that we're debating, to what extent would it curb what we're doing? To what extent would it influence our action, reaction, and thought? Think about this way. Um, elementary school, you go on a field trip. What's the worst thing that could ever happen to that field trip? And it's not rain. It's when your mom fills out a permission slip to come as a chaperone. Why? Well, because at that age, all I'm thinking in elementary school, because my mom did this. My mom loved to do that. She wanted to know what was going on in our lives. All I looked at it at that point in my life, because of my immaturity, was I won't be able to do anything on this trip. My mom will be everywhere. And she will stop me, and she'll prohibit me, and I'll have no fun. Why even go on the trip? Do you know what happened by the time I'm a teenager? In other words, as I understand a little more, the relationship with my parents grows more beyond, the maturity grows. I find myself in situations where friends are saying, come on, it'll be okay, come on. You know the thought that's going through my head is not, my mom and dad will kill me if I do this. Because that's not the right motivation. But by, by that time, and by the re, relate, that time, the relationship my parents built me was, I don't know, I actually had to say this at, at one particular gathering we were at with just teens. They said, come on. And I went, I, I don't think I can. Is it against your religion? And I said, at that time, I don't know for sure. Because I didn't quite know what to do with that. But I did know one thing. I loved my mom and dad, and I knew my mom and dad loved me. And I wasn't sure exactly how they would stand on it, because we, we never had a discussion about it. But I opted out not participating in the activity. And a couple other friends decided not to participate too because I wanted my parents to be pleased. And if later on they said, it was okay, it's okay. Okay, then it's fine. But think about this in relation to God. When we're thinking about the passage even this morning, that they were to please God more and more. It's, it's a process that continues to grow. And it doesn't just grow here, it grows through action. The two, the two are going together as we know more and more about God, as God intervenes in life more and more, and as we learn more and more about Scripture. And God would say to us the same as Abraham, walk thou before me and be blameless, be, be without fault, be without blemish, be without sin. Have the same reputation that Noah had with the people that were around them What's the greatest pressure that happens now in life? 
We need to say God. But it's not God because he's going to squash me or because if I do this, he won't bless me. He'll take all my blessings away, so I'm going to do this. It's completely the opposite that God is wanting. He's wanting us to know the extent, not only that he's holy, but the extent that he loves. And that the things that he's commanding and the things that he's asking are, are, are not just so God can be God. They have benefit for us too. And he wants us to come to a point where we trust that so much that we literally do walk before him. And we really are conscience wherever we turn and whatever circumstances face our way and whatever challenges that are going on that this God is powerful enough to take us through, that this God loved us so much he gave his only son, so now now motivation to please changes too. I think all of those types of things end up in the midst. And so to to answer A.W. Tozer and to answer C.S. Lewis, they say yes to both of them. That probably one of the most important things about us is what we believe about God and what we believe that God believes about us or thinks about us, that they're accurately reflected in Scripture. And those two things are supposed to guide thought, guide activity, give comfort through challenges. And so we help each other know more and more about God. We help each other in in the actual carrying of it out. And the end result is... We want to be blameless. We want to be blameless as an individual before God and want to be blameless as a corporate body before God. And so may God help us as we help each other in that regard. Lord God, you are the almighty God. And there really is nobody like you. And yet at the same time, dear God, you created us You created us and you give us understanding that you can have delight in us. And we know that is all centered in Christ. We know that's all based in Christ. Lord, I just pray that you would help us as we grow in our Christianity and as we grow in our knowledge of you. That it would have impact in our life. It would shape our thoughts. Pray, dear God, that it would have an enormous about, the, the most enormous influence on our activity so that, dear God, our motivation might always be to honor you, and that we might be conscious of you as we walk through this life, through the rest of tonight, that we might be conscious of you, very conscious of you as we walk through life tomorrow and on to the next day until we can meet again. We pray, dear God, that you may find us faithful through your strength and your help, and we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen.